Hello, my name is Alison Salisbury. I was the carer for my son who died from complex mental illness. Welcome to the second series of Do You Really Want to Know? Mental Health Conversations. Today, I'm speaking with John Clark. John works at Rural Alive and Well, a not-for-profit organisation that helps individuals, families and communities with mental health issues with a focus on reducing the prevalence of suicide in rural communities of Tasmania. John has lived experience with depression, anxiety and suicide ideation. John, a former engineer, now works at Rural Alive and Well as a trainer in suicide prevention and mental health and as a volunteer speaker for Beyond Blue and Suicide Prevention Australia. John is passionate about reducing the stigma around mental illness and encouraging others to get help for themselves, their families or their mates. Would you like to tell your story, John? Yeah, um, so... My background is um, grew up in country Victoria. Um, my parents um, separated when I was around about 10 and mum and um, my sisters and I moved to Melbourne um, where we started a new school and did high school in Melbourne and then went on to do chemical engineering at Monash University. Um, so I have a, a sort of a rural country kind of background, plus also um, spent time in the city and uh, did chemical engineering. Moved down to Tasmania um, after working in Melbourne for a few years. There was an opportunity to work in the pulp and paper industry here while it was kind of viable. Um, and my wife and I both moved down. We, we sort of got married fairly young. Um, and I guess at that time in life, we had everything going for us. Um, we were fit, healthy, um, young, both good careers. We bought a house down here after being down here for about 12 months. Um, worked, had a successful career in the, in the pulp and paper industry. Uh, did really well out of that. Um, and obviously as it declined, um, had to find other work. So I ended up in a not-for-profit sort of charitable organisation as a team leader. And I always say this, I'm, I'm never really quite sure why they make engineers managers because <laughs> we're really good at working with things. I think, man, I think engineers are pretty efficient people and fairly productive yeah. sort of systems process orientated. And I love working with processes because what engineers do is that they make processes efficient. They tweak stuff. Yes. So then you get a guy who loves numbers and processes and then you put him in charge of about 10 people. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just tweaking people. <laughs> but it doesn't really work as well because people tell you to bugger off and they get really upset. And, um, and it, was, it was quite confusing because you'd ask someone to change the way they do something and say, we're not doing it that way anymore, we're doing it this way and, and we've got different goals now or whatever it might be. And people react um, quite uh, unexpectedly. So um, I think in that role as a manager and as a team leader, my responsibilities were quite, um, I had sort of significant responsibilities, but I just didn't feel like I had the skills 
to, to, to pull the job off. I didn't have the people skills. I didn't have the management skills. Um, I didn't have the, the financial strengths um, to manage that. And I started to go downhill in that role eventually. After quite a number of years, um, maybe five or six years into that role, and at the same time, we'd started our little family. So my kids were around about two, four and six years old when I um, became most unwell. So I think it was workplace burnout that sort of drove me into the ground. But I'm a pretty typical bloke. And as I said, I've got that country background as well. And country people are pretty um, big on stoicism. So the she'll be right, mate, um, you know, just um, have a cup of cement and harden up, pull yourself up by your bootstrap, son, that sort of thing. My dad's very stoic. He's, um, he's 83. He's still farming. And um, he's served um, in the fire brigade for I don't know how many years. And, you know, he's running a really big operation and it just nothing seems to phase him. He just, he's, just, he's just like an energizer <laughs> bunny that just keeps going. Um, so we have that sort of that in our blood as well. And there's that rural thing of, um, of you, you've got to be able to stand on your own two feet because no one else will help you sort of thing, that kind of rural Australian sort of mentality. Yes. And just blokes in general, um, that whole idea of masculinity, that was kind of playing against me as well because um, emotions didn't matter. Um, they were inconsequential, insignificant. It didn't matter if you were in a world of hurt. Um, you just soldiered on anyway and your family counted on you, and you were the rock, you were supposed to be solid, you were supposed to sort your own problems out. Real men don't get help, uh, real men help others, those sort of ideas. And they weren't necessarily conscious ideas that I'd ever expressed to anyone, but they're just very closely held ideas, and that's what makes you a real man. So masculinity just did not help me, um, because I started to get overwhelmed. I found it difficult to get out of bed after a while, um, especially in, um, you know, with little kids at home. They're just so boisterous and so energetic. I just couldn't face them. I was starting to get really anxious um, going to work. And when I say anxious, I wouldn't have described it as anxious. I, you know, my heart was pounding and I had uh, just a horrible, sick feeling in my stomach and um, not wanting to face going to work. I felt like there was just impending doom all the time. Um, I became really irritable um, and downright angry um, at times, scarily angry. Um, my daughter um, was looking back through some old photos one time and she saw me, a photo of me around that time, and she said, oh, that's scary, Dad. And um, she's 15 at, 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 the, at now, and she, you know, she was only a little tacker when, um, when I was unwell, and that really scared her. So... I was very irritable. I'd get really angry. Um, I developed a hair trigger and I just avoided everyone and everything. I avoided doing my job. I avoided meetings. I avoided um, emails, phone calls. If you, if you could avoid it, I avoided it. It was just terrible. And um, I couldn't concentrate after a while. I couldn't make decisions. I couldn't think. When I got really unwell, I couldn't even do basic things like um, 
discount loose change. So if you go to the shop and you want to pay for some stamps and it's $3.70 or something like that, I couldn't even count $3.70 without feeling embarrassed because of how long it was taking. So um, I, I mentioned this to someone one time in a group and they came up to me afterwards and said, I had that exact same problem. And I said, well, what did you do about it? She said, oh, yeah, I just used to take coins out of my wallet and put them on the counter and say, you count it. <laughs> so it's amazing how people with mental health problems find uh, resilient ways to manage their symptoms in order to still get by, which is lovely. Um, I, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. I had nightmares every night. Um, and, you know, the sheets would just be soaking. And um, a lot of conflict between myself and my wife. Um, I, for a while, I was kind of blaming everyone around me for not um, doing their jobs properly. And at one stage, I told my wife to um, lift a game, which wasn't, it didn't go well. It, uh, I ended up in the doghouse. No, exactly. Yeah. You know those days when you leave work and you've got little kids and the whole place just looks like chaos? And then you go to work and then you come home after a really long day and it looks kind of like the same chaos. And you think, what happened here? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing's happened. There's, yeah. You, you, you know, there's the, the kids are running around the house in the morning looking for food with full nappies. And then you come home and they're running around the house looking for food with full nappies. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Welcome to so that Karen. The, I know. Exactly. <laughs> so that was where the lift your game um, yeah. thing came from. Because I just, I couldn't, I was so vulnerable and so fragile at the time. I could not afford to be coming home to please help bathe these kids and put, put tea on um, for me because I haven't had a chance to and then put them to bed and read them a story. It was just too much. So I was avoiding coming home from work as well. And then I was getting in trouble for that. So lots of conflict. I started to obviously self-medicate like a lot of blokes do. I started to um, turn to alcohol to try and just manage um, my emotions. But I was in a, I was in a lot of emotional pain. Um, I was just really, really hurting. Um, the whole thing just hurt. Um, I looked angry. And I looked withdrawn, but um, deep down, I was just really, really hurting and couldn't find a way out of it. Can you describe and, what that feels like, John? Yeah, it just feels like pain. Um, it feels like someone's tearing your heart out. It just feels like being stabbed in the guts with a knife and someone twisting it and turning it. Um, it's grief. It's like you've lost the thing that you love the most in life. It's like if you had a, a dog that was just, you know, you'd, you'd had that dog for 15 years and you just loved that dog and someone shot it. Um, or it's like losing a child. It's just this intense feeling of grief and pain and, and loss. And um, what do you do with that? Um, especially if you've got no language for emotion. So I don't... Um, there's this condition called male normative alexithymia. Um, it's a great word and it's male because it's particular to males it's normative because it's very typical for males and alexithymia means inability to put words to emotions um, so if I can't even describe my emotions how am I going to get help for it I can't even talk about it because I don't know what they are I just knew that it it it, it really hurt in the, in, in, in the pit of my stomach and I had to get a psychologist eventually to help me understand emotions and how to articulate them so that I could have some basic skills to manage them. Uh, we're so behind the eight ball as blokes. Um, if, we, if we can't process emotions in a healthy way, what do we do? We just suppress them, we bury them, we try and ignore them. 
Um, I remember telling my story in, in a mine um, down in Rosebury one time and, and a miner came up to me and he said, you've ruined my day. And I said, um, I'm really sorry, because he was very upset. He said, you've ruined my day. I don't think I can do my shift today. We had a bit of a chat and I also had a bit of a chat to his team later. But what he said had happened was that I told my story and my story is so typical. Um, it's such a common experience for blokes. He said, I just, I've suppressed all that. And you brought everything back up. Um, basically just popped the cork and I'm unraveled now and I'm really upset. So he'd basically done um, what our frontline kind of strategy is for dealing with this and that's stick our head in the sand and hope that it goes away. We bottle it up, we push it down really deep and slam the lid on it. And there, you know, sometimes those things get out. Um, it's really unhealthy, but what else can you do if you don't have any other skills around this? Mm. So, um, it was pain in hindsight, but it looked like um, I was really angry. And um, while I don't condone um, the behaviour of angry men, um, I'm empathetic um, towards the anger that men feel. And I um, am interested in looking at the underlying causes of those anger. Because we seem to be, we're often fairly un um, mono-emotional in that sense. We, um, we feel pain, but it we express it as anger. We feel frustration. We express it as anger. We feel loss and we express it as anger. We feel guilt and we express it as anger. We feel jealousy and we express it as anger. We feel like failures and we express it like, like anger. And so kind of there's this, there's this one expression coming from this bloke, but what's underneath it? What's driving it? Um, and they're the conversations that I really like to have with men um, because often it's not just anger. It's, um, it's something else. And really interesting studies as well on this uh, idea of emotional pain. Mm -hmm. When people experience emotional pain, if you do a brain scan on them, the same part of the brain lights up um, that I would uh, light up if I hit my thumb with a hammer and I was just in intense physical pain. It's the same part of the brain. So it's for all intents and purposes internally, we're really suffering, but externally we can't see anything. And uh, it just it's, it's an experience that doesn't, make sense at all to be experiencing that level of pain and to not have anything really wrong with you or wrong in your life that you can see anyway really so yeah so sorry? just to interrupt for a minute so when you where's the line between being really in trouble and just not being able to express yourself do you think yeah the line is when your strategies, coping strategies, um, affect your safety. So there's a difference between not coping and really floundering and struggling and needing some skills and needing some support. And floundering, not having skills, needing support, but thinking of ways to end it all. So this is the issue for men is that first we try fixing it. So we try and think of as many ways to fix the problem as, as we can. And I did this. I put on an extra staff member. I, um, I got my PA to shield me from phone calls and emails. And um, I tried taking time off. I tried taking up fly fishing. 
and I was already an absent dad and I wasn't doing really pulling my weight at home. So that went down pretty badly as well. I was really actually just moving the chairs on the Titanic. I was already sinking, um, but moving the deck chairs and, and the band playing just wasn't going to, wasn't going to keep that floating. Um, so I did try some things to fix it. None of them worked. And then I think guys turn their attention to stopping the pain. So we might escape, we might take up gambling, we might um, break up relationships, we might start to use drugs or alcohol, we might start to race fast cars, try and get some adrenaline going, that sort of thing. Um, so we might try and stop the pain. And then when we can no longer fix it or stop the pain, then we need to find a solution to that. And for me, I realised that I was the problem. It wasn't my staff that were incompetent. It wasn't my wife um, that was incompetent. The common denominator in this whole situation, um, this whole mess was me. And so um, the logical thing is to eliminate me. And in my mind, it would stop my pain, but it was more than that. It would stop everyone else's pain. It would, um, in my mind, it would be, I'd be doing my wife and kids a favour because I, I believed that she would uh, remarry and find someone who was genuinely there for her and loved her. And while I loved her, I couldn't be there for her. I, I was too unwell. Um, it's like fighting with an arm tied behind your back. It's just, you know, I was trying to run a race with a broken leg and it, wasn't, it just wasn't happening. And I figured it, that my kids would um, at least get a stepdad who would spend time with them because I loved my kids and I love them now, but I just didn't have the capacity to, to listen to them and, and interact with them and do the things that, um, that dads um, should do with their kids. So I figured that they'd get a stepdad. So in my mind, it, it kind of, it was all going to be okay and that I'd be alleviating everyone of um, the horrible person that I'd become, essentially, and the absent person that I'd become. So people say that um, people who suicide are cowards mm. and self-centred. That's a really common thing that I hear. So I, I do suicide prevention training now. <laughs> so I get to hear it all. Um, and I resist the temptation to jump down people's throats when they say things like that. But I try and help them understand that sometimes or often the suicidal person is thinking of the other people in their life and that they feel like such a burden to them and that they're causing so much pain and distress to the people around them, their loved ones, that, um, that the suicide is a way to stop that. In the reading, um, but I also... Sorry, John. I was just going to say, in the reading I've done, they some of the um, studies describe the kind of tunnel vision that people get. Totally. Suicidal, having suicidal ideation. and that That's they exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So you you've thought of everything else. You've tried everything else. It's there's only one more solution left um, because it, nothing else has worked, and um, death is the is the kind of final um, solution. But I do try and help people who are suicidal understand that yes, it does stop your pain, mm. um, but it 
it simply spreads that pain to everyone else who knows you. Um, so it doesn't stop the pain for everyone. It's just, um, it just spreads it around that it's ongoing pain for everyone. And I don't say that in a way to make people feel guilty. Um, I say it in a really compassionate way. Uh, it's just that it doesn't occur to people who are suicidal. It never occurred to me that, that anybody, you know, I've, you, you think that people are going to be upset at your funeral, but in your mind, you, your workplace sends a bunch of flowers to your funeral and then puts an ad in the paper. I mean, everybody just moves on. It's, it's just the way of the world, right? So you definitely downplay it in your head how much grief and pain it's going to cause. And it wasn't until I heard um, a survivor's story. Um, so I went to a, a night where people were talking about their experiences with suicide and I heard a uh, wife and mother say that she lost her husband to suicide and she tried to raise two boys on her own, uh, two teenage boys who are in a world of hurt. And she said life has never, nor will it ever be the same. And she talked about the pain of, um, of losing a husband and what she saw her boys go through. And I sat in that audience and I thought, I came that close to putting my children through that. I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was absolutely gobsmacked. And um, she's a bit of a hero of mine. I uh, really appreciate her um, telling a story. It's so important that survivor's stories are told because um, it can make a big difference to people who are considering it. So I started to focus on that. I wanted to make it fatal because um, I didn't want to muck it up. And I'm, I'm an engineer, so I'm a bit thorough <laughs> with things like that. I think that's a real hesitance with people who do contemplate suicide as well. There is a fear of, of, um, of mucking it up and becoming incapacitated in some way. So that can be um, something that keeps people alive. Um, so, you know, that, that's a good thing in that sense to have that fear because that, that is normal and rational fear. We, we've evolved as, as human beings to to want to be safe and to um, uh, move away from uh, death and um, uh, injury. So, you know, people have to override that to suicide. Um, so, and I'm not saying it's a courageous act, but it does take a lot of... Um, you know, you have to stare down your, your basic will to live, um, which is a pretty powerful thing, and overcome those that need for safety. So I wanted to make it fatal, so I was looking at um, ways to, to end my life. And one night in my office, I thought to myself, normal people don't do this. Um, and while it is normal, to have thoughts of suicide, it's not very common. I think, you know, maybe 13, maybe 20% maximum um, of the population would have thoughts of, of suicide. So it's, it's not super common, even though it is a normal experience for people in a lot of pain. Um, but I, you know, that was my thought, normal people don't do this, which was the starting point of my recovery. Because what I did then was I thought, well, if normal people don't do this, maybe something's wrong with me. And if something's wrong with me, then maybe a whole new kind of um, way of looking at it. For whatever reason, I jumped on the Beyond Blue website. I have no appreciation for mental health problems at this stage in my life. I thought mental health problems 
were for disadvantaged people, um, people who um, have problems, drug addictions, homelessness, um, relationship issues, uh, you know, the list goes on of, of everyone else has a health problem, but not me. And, you know, I had a lot of protective factors as well. Um, I had uh, good health. I was young. I was um, good career, good education, relationships, my own home. I had a lot going for me um, in terms of protective factors. So really it was something that happened to other people. But I jumped on the Beyond Blue website and did a quick um, uh, K10 test, I think it was. And scored really high on it. And it said, you need to go to your GP, which was also a massive revelation for me. I don't know if this is just uh, bloke land that I've been living in for too long, but who would have ever thought that you should go to your GP and talk about your feelings? Uh, that was just, uh, you know, such an out there idea. Um, I'm happy to go for injections or to get stitched up if I've cut myself or something like that. But to talk about my feelings, that's, that's really kind of out there. But that's what the instructions said to do. So I kind of um, did not do that. <laughs> what, <laughs> no, what happened was... <laughs> sorry? You didn't follow that advice. I did not. No, not for, not for months. What I thought was, oh, so it looks like I've got depression. Um, surely I can fix that. So let's learn a bit about that. Let's try and make some changes. Let's try and um, take a bit of time off, relax a little bit, that sort of thing. Um, but for major depressive disorder, uh, lifestyle changes probably in and of themselves aren't going to do it. Maybe mild to moderate depression. You could kind of get yourself out of a tailspin if you made sort of some fairly radical um, lifestyle changes around your well-being. But I had major depressive disorder and that was not going to go away without clinical help. In the next episode, John will talk about his recovery from mental illness and his next steps. And again, if this episode has raised any concerns for you, please contact Lifeline 131114. Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800 Beyond Blue 1300 22 4636 or Sane Australia 1800 18 72.